Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Ineos Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 92, Rolls, Part 3 There was nothing left to do. There was nothing left to plan. There was nothing left to think. Into that emptiness rose the new worst memory. The boy who lived unlike his best friend trudged the long echoing corridors toward the great hall. With all his energies of thought exhausted, his mind was starting to throw out thoughts like an image of Hermione walking beside him and wordless concepts like That will never happen again. Until another part yelled, No! and shouted it down with determination to bring her back. Only that part's voice was getting tired, and the other part seemed tireless. Another part of his mind insisted on reviewing what he'd said to Professor McGonagall and Dad and Mum, even though he'd only been trying to get them out of there as quickly as possible and had been running on limited mental energy, as though somehow he could have done better by an act of his defective will. What would be left of his relationship with his parents now, Harry couldn't guess. He came finally to a junction where there waited an older boy in green-fringed black robes, silently reading a textbook on the path that someone would pick if they wanted to intercept someone going from the healer's chambers to the Great Hall. Harry was wearing the Cloak of Invisibility, of course. He'd put it on after leaving the office, rendering himself immune to almost all forms of magical detection. There was no point in making it easy for anyone trying to find him and kill him and Harry was almost set to continue past without bothering to find out what was going on when he recognized the Slytherin boy's face. Realization dawned on Harry then. Of course, one of the students who had stayed in school over the Easter holiday would naturally have been... You were waiting for me? Harry said out loud, without removing the cloak. The Slytherin boy jerked back, hitting his head against the wall, his fifth-year charms textbook dropping from his hands, before he looked up with wide eyes. You're... Invisible, yes. Say what you mean to say. Lysothless Strange scrambled to his feet, a position of attention, then blurted out, My lord, did I do the right thing? I thought you would not wish me to step forward before all those others, that they might suspect our connection. I thought, surely if you wished my help, you would call on me. It was amazing how many different ways there were to kill your best friend by being stupid. I... Lesoth hesitated, then said in a small voice, I was wrong, wasn't I? You acted exactly as you should have under the circumstances. It is I who was a fool. I'm sorry, my lord. If you had come with me, would you have been able to kill the troll? It wasn't even the correct question. The correct question was whether Harry himself would have considered Lasoth as sufficient and flown out 60 seconds earlier. But still... I... I'm not sure, my lord. I am not much welcome to dueling practices in Slytherin. I have not learned the gestures to the killing curse. Should I study those arts to better serve you, my lord? I continue to insist that I am not your lord. Yes, my lord. Although, and this is not any kind of order, just a remark, anyone ought to know how to defend themselves, especially you. 
I'm sure the defense professor would help you with that on general principles if you asked. Lesoth bowed his head and said, Yes, my lord. I will follow your orders if I can, my lord. Harry would have complained about being misunderstood if he hadn't been understood perfectly. Lesoth left. Harry stared at the wall. He'd honestly thought that he'd figured out all the different ways that he'd been stupid after spending half a day thinking about it. Apparently, this had just been more overconfidence on his part. Do we understand what we did wrong? His Slytherin side said coldly. Yes, Harry thought. Your ethical qualms don't even make sense. You're not tricking Lasoth. You did exactly what Lasoth thinks you did. You wouldn't have to make excuses for why Lasoth was helping you. You could just say you were calling in the debt from rescuing him from bullies. There were six witnesses to that. Hermione died because you forgot about an extremely valuable resource. And you forgot about Lasoth because... Why? Because having Lasoth Lestrange for a minion seemed sort of... Dark Lordish? Hufflepuff said in a small mental voice. I mean, that decision was probably mostly me. Harry Slytherin sighed didn't answer that in words, just radiated contempt and flashed an image of Hermione's corpse. Stop it! Next time, I suggest that we spend more time worrying about what is efficient and effective, and less time worrying about what seems sort of dark lordish. Point made, Harry thought. I will. No, you won't. You'll come up with more rationalizations for your petty qualms. You'll start listening to me after your next friend dies. Harry was starting to worry that he was going insane. The conversations he had with the voices in his head weren't usually like this. The boy who lived. Pain. Harry Varys trudged on alone. Hurts. Harry walked on through the silent corridors. How is Mr. Potter doing? demanded Professor Quirrell. There was a tension about the man, you could not quite call it concern, more like an ambusher measuring the time to strike. The Grangers had hardly left with Madame Pomfrey before the defense professor had knocked upon the door to her office and then entered without waiting for her answer, and spoken before she could say a word. Part of Minerva wondered distantly whether Harry Potter had picked up that habit from his defense professor, being unaware of others' pain when there was something else on his mind, or if it was only a childish flaw which this man had somehow failed to grow out of. Mr. Potter has ceased guarding Miss Granger's body, she said, putting some of the chill she felt into her voice. She felt certain that the defense professor was not experiencing as much grief as she was. The man had spoken not a single word of Hermione Granger. For him to put demands on her... I believe he has gone down to dinner. I am not asking after the boy's physical state. Have you... has he... Professor Quirrell made a sharp gesture, as though to indicate a concept for which he had no words. Not particularly. She was around thirty seconds away from ordering the defense professor out of her office. Professor Quirrell began to pace within the small confines of her office. Miss Granger was the only one whose worries he truly heeded. With her gone, 
All checks on the boy's recklessness are removed. I see it now. Who else is there? Mr. Longbottom? Mr. Potter does not pretend that they are peers. Flitwick? His goblin blood would only cry for vengeance. Mr. Malfoy, if he were returned? To what end? Snape? A walking disaster. Dumbledore? Pfah! Events are already set for catastrophe. They must be steered along some course they would not naturally go. Who might Mr. Potter heed who would not ordinarily speak to him? Cedric Diggory has taught him, but what would Mr. Diggory say in advice? An unknown. Mr. Potter spent long in speech with Remus Lupin. To him I have paid little heed. Would Lupin know the words to speak, the act which must be done, the sacrifice which must be made to change the boy's course? Professor Quirrell whirled on her. Did Remus Lupin comfort those in grief, or stay those moved to rash deeds during his time with the Order of the Phoenix? It is not a poor thought. I believe that Mr. Lupin was often a voice of restraint to James Potter in his Hogwarts days. James Potter, said Professor Quirrell, his eyes narrowing. The boy is not much like James Potter. Are you confident in the success of this plan? No, that is the wrong question. We are not limited to a single plan. Are you certain that this plan will be enough, that we need essay no others? Asked in such fashion, the question answers itself. The path leading to disaster must be averted along every possible point of intervention. The defense professor had resumed pacing the confines of her office, reaching one wall, turning on his heel, pacing to the other. My apologies, Professor. She did not bother keeping the sharpness from her voice. But I have quite reached my limits for the day. You may go. You. Professor Quirrell spun, and she found herself gazing directly into eyes of icy blue. You would be the first one I would think of after Miss Granger to stay the boy from a folly. Have you already done your utmost? Of course you have not. How dare he suggest that? If you have nothing more to say, Professor, then you will go. Has your confederacy deduced who I really am? The words were spoken with deceptive mildness. Yes, in fact. Now- Pure magic, pure power crashed into the room like a flash of lightning, like a thunderclap echoing about her ears and deafening her other senses. The papers on her desk blown aside not by any conjured wind, but by the sheer raw force of arcane might. Then the power subsided, leaving only Hermione Granger's death certificates drifting down through the air to the floor. I am David Monroe, who fought Voldemort. Heed my words. The boy cannot be allowed to continue in this state of mind. He will become dangerous. It is possible that you have already done everything you can, yet I find this a very rare event indeed, and more often said than done. I suspect rather that you have only done what you customarily do. I cannot truly comprehend what drives others to break their bounds since I never had them. People remain surprisingly passive when faced with the prospect of death. Fear of public ridicule or losing one's livelihood is more likely to drive men to extremes and the breaking of their customary habits. 
On the other side of the war, the Dark Lord had excellent results from the Cruciatus Curse, judiciously used on marked servants who cannot escape punishment except by success, with no reasonable efforts accepted. Imagine their state of mind within yourself, and ask yourself whether you have truly done all that you can to wrench Harry Potter from his course. I am a Gryffindor and not much given to being moved by fear. You will exercise courtesy within my office. I find fear an excellent motivation, and indeed it is fear that moves me now. You know who, for all his horror, still abided by certain boundaries. It is my professional judgment, speaking as a learned wizard almost on par with Dumbledore or he who must not be named, that the boy could join the ranks of those whose rituals are inscribed upon the tombstones of countries. This is not an idle worry, McGonagall. I have already heard words to produce the gravest apprehensions. Are you mad? You think that Mr. Potter could... This is ridiculous. Mr. Potter cannot possibly... A wordless image crossed her mind of a patch of glass on a steel ball. Mr. Potter would not do such a thing. His deliberate choice is not required. Wizards rarely set out to invoke their own dooms. Mr. Potter may not strike you as malicious. Does he strike you as reckless once he is resolved upon a goal? I say again that I have specific reason for the gravest possible concerns. Have you spoken to the headmaster of this? That would be worse than pointless. Dumbledore cannot reach the boy. At best, he is wise enough to know this and make things no worse. I lack the requisite frame of mind. You are the one who... But I see that you still look for others to save you. The defense professor turned from her and strode to the door. I think I shall consult with Severus Snape. The man may be a walking disaster, but he knows the fact, and he may possess a greater understanding of that boy's mood. As for you, madame, imagine yourself at the end of your life, knowing that Britain... But no, Britain is not your true country, is it? Imagine yourself at the end of your life as the darkness eats through the fading walls of Hogwarts, knowing that your students will die with you, remembering this day, and realizing there was something else you could have done. End Chapter 92 Chapter 93 Rolls Part 4 Harry had walked into the Great Hall, looked around only once, grabbed enough calories to sustain himself, walked out, put on his cloak again, and found a small random corner in which to eat. Seeing the students at their tables. Feeling revulsion when you look at other humans is not a good sign, Hufflepuff said. It's not reasonable to blame them for having not had your opportunities to learn what you've learned. Inaction in emergencies has nothing to do with people being selfish. Normalcy bias, like that plane crash in 10 or something, where a few people ran out and escaped, but most people just sat in their seats not moving while their plane was literally on fire. Look at how long you took to really start moving. It serves no useful purpose to hate, said Gryffindor. It's just going to damage your altruism. 
Try to figure out a training method you could use to prevent this from happening next time, said Ravenclaw. I'll go ahead and register the experimental prediction, said Slytherin, that we'll always observe exactly what would be predicted on the hypothesis that people cannot be saved, cannot be taught, and will never help us with anything important. Also, we need some way of keeping track of all the times I'm right. Harry ignored the voices in his head and just ate slices of toast as fast as he could. It wasn't proper nutrition as a general policy, but one-time exceptions wouldn't hurt so long as he made them up the next day. In mid-bite, a blazing silver silhouette of a phoenix flew in from nowhere and said, in the voice of a tired old man, Please remove your cloak, Harry. I have a letter to deliver to you. Harry coughed for a bit, swallowed some toast which had gone down the wrong way, stood up, took off the cloak of invisibility, and said aloud, Tell Dumbledore I said fine, and then sat down and continued to eat his toast. The toast had all gone by the time Albus Dumbledore walked up to Harry's nook, carrying folded sheets of paper in his hand. Real paper with lines, not wizard's parchment. Is that... From your father and from your mother. Wordlessly, Dumbledore handed over the folded sheets, and wordlessly, Harry accepted them. The old wizard hesitated, then said quietly, The defense professor has told me to restrain my counsel, and I thought the same thing myself when given time to think. I have always taken too long to learn the virtues of silence. But, if I am mistaken, you need only say the word. You're not mistaken. Harry looked down at the folded, lined papers, feeling the sickness in his gut that was how his body indicated a strong pessimistic prediction. His parents wouldn't actually disown him, and there wasn't much they could do to him. Some part of himself was still afraid in a very visceral way of television privileges being taken away, no matter how little sense that made now. But he had stepped outside the role that parents would expect of children who, in their internal beliefs, were lower on the pecking order. It would be stupid to expect anything except complete indignant fury, all-out righteous rage, when you acted like that to someone who thought they were dominant over you. After you read it, I believe that you should come to the Great Hall at once, Harry. There is an announcement which you will wish to hear. I'm not interested in funerals. No, not that. Please, Harry, come as soon as you are done reading, and do so without your cloak. Will you? Yes. The old wizard left. Harry had to force himself to open the letter. The important thing was keeping your vulnerable friends and relations out of harm's way. It might be a cliché, but so far as Harry could tell, the logic was valid. Damaged relationships could be repaired later. The first letter said, in script handwriting that required a careful focus for Harry to read, Son. No matter what you've read in books, keeping us out of harm's way is not as important as having adults who can help you when you're in trouble. You decided without giving us a word in edgewise that we'd abandon you because of your dark side. 
The ghost of Shakespeare knows that I've seen things in this last year that were not dreamt of in my philosophy. Sometimes I wonder if your mom isn't just humoring me and the authorities took you away when I started thinking you were a magic user. So I can't deny that it's possible you've managed to develop some... I'm not quite sure what to call it, but dark side seems premature if we don't know what's happening. Are you sure it's not a burgeoning telepathic talent and you're just picking up on the minds of other wizards around you? Their thoughts might seem evil to a child who grew up in a saner civilization. These are ungrounded speculations, I admit, but you shouldn't jump to conclusions either. The two most important things I have to tell you are this. First, son, I have every confidence in your ability to stay on the light side of the Force so long as you choose to, and I have every confidence that you will choose to. If there's some evil spirit whispering horrible suggestions in your ears, just ignore the suggestions. I do feel the need to emphasize that you should exercise special caution to ignore this evil spirit, even if it is suggesting what seem like wonderful creative ideas. And I hope I do not need to remind you about the incident with the science project, which would, I admit, make a deal more sense if you were struggling with demonic possession. The second thing I have to say is that you do not need to fear that Mum or I are going to abandon you because of your dark side. We may not have expected you to gain magical powers or develop an affinity for black magic, but we did expect you to become a teenager. Which, if you think about it from your poor father's perspective, is already a sufficiently worrying prospect regarding a child who, by the age of nine, had been party to the summoning of a total of five fire engines. Children grow up. I won't lie to you and say that you will feel as close to us at 20 as you do now, but... Your mom and I will feel just as close to you when we are old and gray and bothering the nursing home robots. Children always grow up and away from their parents, and parents always follow them from behind, offering helpful advice. Children grow up and their personalities change, and they do things their parents wish they would not do, and they act disrespectfully towards their parents and have them hauled out of their magical schools, and the parents go on loving them anyway. It's nature's way. Though in the event that you have not yet hit puberty and your teenage years are proportionately worse than this, we reserve the right to reconsider this sentiment. No matter what is happening, remember that we love you, and will always love you no matter what. I don't know if our love has any magical power under your rules, but if it does, don't hesitate to call on it. With all of this said, Harry, what you did there is not acceptable. I think you know that. And I also know that this is not the time to lecture you on it. But you must write and tell us what is happening. I can understand very well why you'd want us taken out of your school at once, and I know we can't force you to do anything. But please, Harry, be reasonable and realize how terrified we must be. I would like to tell you that you are absolutely forbidden to mess around with any magic that the adults around you consider to be the least bit unsafe, but for all I know, the teachers at your school are giving everyone lessons in advanced necromancy every Monday. Please, please exercise as much caution as your situation permits, whatever your situation may be. Despite your very hurried summary, we don't have the slightest idea of what is happening, and I hope that you will write us as much as you can. It is clear that you are, at least in some ways, growing up, and I will not try to act like a children's book parent who only makes things worse, though I hope you appreciate how hard this is, and your mom has said a number of frightening things to me about how wizardry stays secret and how I might get you in trouble by making waves. I cannot tell you to avoid anything unsafe, 
because your school is unsafe and your headmaster will not let you leave. I can't tell you that you shouldn't take responsibility for anything happening around you, because for all I know there are other children in trouble. But remember that it is not your moral responsibility to protect any adults. Their place is to protect you, and every good adult would agree with that. Please write, and tell us more as soon as you can. Both of us are desperate to help. If there's anything at all that we can do, please let us know at once. There's nothing which can happen to us which would be worse than learning that something had happened to you. Love, Dad. The last page said only, You promised me that you wouldn't let magic take you away from me. I didn't raise you to be a boy who would break a promise to his mum. You must come back safely, because you promised. Love, Mum. Slowly, Harry lowered the letters and began to walk towards the Great Hall. His hands were shaking, his whole body was shaking, and it seemed to be taking a very great deal of effort not to cry, which he knew wordlessly that he must not do. He hadn't cried through all of the day, and he wouldn't cry. Crying was the same as admitting defeat. And this wasn't over, so he wouldn't cry. The food served in the great hall that evening was plain that night. Toast and butter and jam, water and orange juice, oatmeal and other simple fare, without dessert. Some students had worn simple black robes without their house colors. Others had still worn theirs. It should have been cause for argument, but there was instead a quietness, the sound of people eating without talking. It took two sides to make a debate, and one of the sides, this night, was not much interested in debating. Deputy Headmistress Minerva McGonagall sat at the head table and did not eat. She should have. Perhaps she would in a short while, but she could not force herself to do it now. For a Gryffindor, there was only one path. It had taken Minerva only a short time to remember that, when after the defense professor's urgings, her mind had stayed empty of clever plots to try. That was not a Gryffindor's way. Or perhaps she ought to say only that it was not her way. Albus did seem to try his hand at plotting. And yet, when she thought back on their history, there were no plots at the moment of crisis. No cleverness and games in the last resort. For Albus Dumbledore, as for her, the rule in extremis was to decide what was the right thing to do, and do it no matter the cost to yourself. Even if it meant breaking your bounds, or changing your role, or letting go of your picture of yourself. That was the last resort of Gryffindor. Through a side entrance of the Great Hall, she saw Harry Potter quietly slip in. It was time. Professor Minerva McGonagall rose from her chair, straightened the worn point of her hat, walked slowly to the lectern before the head table. The sounds in the great hall, already muted, fell away entirely as all students turned to look at her. By now you have all heard, she said, her voice not quite steady, that Hermione Granger is dead. She didn't say those words aloud, since they had all heard. Somehow, a troll was infiltrated into the castle Hogwarts without alarm from our ancient wards. Somehow this troll succeeded in injuring a student without alarm from the wards until the point of her death. 
Investigations are underway to determine how this has occurred. The Board of Governors is meeting to determine how Hogwarts will respond. In due time, justice shall be served. Meanwhile, there is another matter of justice, which must be handled at once. George Weasley, Fred Weasley, please come forward to stand before us all. The Weasley twins exchanged glances where they sat at the Gryffindor table and then stood up and walked toward her, slowly, reluctantly. And Minerva realized then that the Weasley twins thought they were to be expelled. They honestly thought that she would expel them. That was what the picture of Professor McGonagall, who lived in her head, had wrought. The Weasley twins walked over to the lectern, looking up at her with faces that were frightened but resolute, and she felt something in her heart break a little further. I am not going to expel you, she said, and was saddened further by the surprised look on their faces. Fred Weasley, George Weasley, turn and face your classmates, let them see you. Still looking surprised, the Weasley twins did so. She drew up all the steel in her heart and said what was right. I am ashamed of the events of this day. I am ashamed that there were only two of you, ashamed of what I have done to Gryffindor. Of all the houses, it should have been Gryffindor to help when Hermione Granger was in need, when Harry Potter called for the brave to aid him. It was true, a seventh year could have held back a mountain troll while searching for Miss Granger, and you should have believed that the head of House Gryffindor would have believed in you, if you disobeyed her to do what was right in events she had not foreseen. And the reason you did not believe this is that I have never shown it to you. I did not believe in you. I did not believe in the virtues of Gryffindor itself. I tried to stamp out your defiance, instead of training your courage to wisdom. Whatever the sorting hat saw in me, that led it to place me in Gryffindor, I have betrayed it. I have offered my resignation to the headmaster as deputy headmistress and as the head of House Gryffindor. There were cries of shock and dismay, and not only from the Gryffindor table, as Harry's heart froze within his chest. Harry needed to run forward, say something. He hadn't meant for this to... Minerva took another breath and continued. However, the headmaster has declined to accept my resignation. So I will continue to serve and try to undo what I have wrought. Somehow I must find a way to teach my students how to do what is right, not what is safe, not what is easy, not what we are told to do. If all I can teach you is to turn in your essays on time, there might as well not be a house Gryffindor. This road will be more difficult for me, and maybe for all of us, but I know now that before I was only taking the easy path. She stepped down from the lectern, moved down to where the Weasley twins stood. Fred Weasley, George Weasley, the two of you have not always done what is right. The path of wisdom does not lie in flagrant and needless defiance of authority. And yet today you proved to be the last of our house to survive my mistakes. Because it was the right thing to do, you defied a threat of expulsion and risked your lives to face a mountain troll. For your astounding courage that honors your house to have you, 
I award each of you two hundred points for Gryffindor. Again the look of shock on their faces. Again the pain like a knife through her heart. She turned to face the other students. I will not award any points to Ravenclaw. I suspect that Mr. Potter would not want them. If I am wrong, he may correct me and take as many house points as he pleases. But for whatever it is worth, Mr. Potter, I am... I am sorry. Stop! Harry screamed, and then again. Stop! The words sticking in his throat. You don't have to, Professor! Something inside him was twisting, threatening to split him open, like a giant's hands wrenching at him to tear him in half. And you shouldn't forget Susan Bones and Ron Weasley. They also helped. They should get house points too. Miss Bones and the young Weasley? Rubius said nothing of that. What did they do? Miss Bones tried to stun Mr. Haggard when he tried to stop me. And Mr. Weasley shot Neville when Neville tried to stop me. They should both get points. And... and so should Neville. Harry hadn't thought to imagine it before, the way Neville must be feeling now. But the instant he thought, he knew. Because Neville tried to do something, even if it wasn't the right thing. Doing what's right is the second lesson. You can start practicing that after you learn to do anything at all. Ten points to Hufflepuff, Miss Bones. Ten points to Gryffindor, Ron Weasley. Your family has done itself exceeding proud this day. And ten points to Hufflepuff for Neville Longbottom, for standing up to Mr. Potter and doing what he thought was right. You shouldn't screamed a young voice from the Hufflepuff table, followed by a single choking sound. Harry looked there, and then quickly looked back at Professor McGonagall and said, as steadily as he could, Neville's right, actually. You can't award literally zero points for the part where you get the actions correct. That sends the wrong message, too. But he was halfway there, so it could be five points instead. Professor McGonagall looked, for a moment, like she couldn't think of what to say. But then her eyes went to Neville's place at the table, and she said, As you wish, Mr. Potter. What is it, Miss Bones? Harry looked and saw that Susan Bones had stepped forward, wiping at her own eyes, and the Hufflepuff girl said, Actually, um, Professor McGonagall, General Potter didn't see it, but... Captain Weasley and I, we weren't the only ones who tried to get in Mr. Haggard's way after he ran out, before some of the older students stopped us. But we managed to slow Mr. Haggard down a minute so General Potter could get away. You've got to give them points too, or I won't take any, said Ron Weasley from the Gryffindor table. Who else? Seven other children stood up. What was that our Slytherin side was saying? About predicting nothing would ever work? said Hufflepuff. Something in Harry cracked, so that he had to exert all his force to hold himself together. When all had been said, and all had been done, Minerva went to where Harry Potter stood. Though it was not her greatest skill, she cast a ward about them to blur vision, and muffled sounds with another thought. You... you didn't have to... You shouldn't have said... Professor, everything I said to you was hurtful, and hateful, and wrong. I already knew that, Harry. Even so, I wish to do better. 
there was a feeling of lightness in her chest, much as one might experience after stepping off a cliff, when your legs no longer had to hold your body upright. She wasn't sure she could do this, she did not know the way, and yet for the first time it seemed possible that Hogwarts wouldn't become a sad ghost of its former self when she became its headmistress. Harry stared at her, then made an odd noise that sounded like it had been forced from his throat, and covered his face in his hands. She knelt down and hugged him. It might go wrong, but it might also go right, and she would not let that uncertainty stop her. It was time she began to learn a Gryffindor's courage, so that she could teach it in turn. I had a sister once, she whispered. Just that, and nothing more. Just to make sure, said some part of Harry while the rest of him sobbed into Professor McGonagall's arms. This doesn't mean we've accepted Hermione's death, right? No, said all the rest of him, every part of his mind in unanimous agreement. Warmth and cold and a hidden place of steel. Never Ever, forever. And an ancient wizard, to whom that ward meant nothing, gazed upon them both, the witch and the weeping young wizard. Albus Dumbledore was smiling, with a strange, sad look in his eyes, like someone who has taken one more step toward a foreseen destination. The defense professor watched them both, the woman and the crying boy. His eyes were very cold and very calculating. He did not think that this would be enough. It wasn't until the next morning that it was discovered that Hermione Granger's body was missing. End Chapter 93 Thank you to the following people. Minerva McGonagall, read by Autumn Rachel Dryden. Dumbledore, Drake Walker. Robert Doss, reading for Dr. Michael Varis Evans. Lasoth Lestrange, read by Eric Scow. Petunia Dursley, by Annie McCabe. Neville, by Adam Hartel. Lauren Housley, as Susan Bones. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Welcome to the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for Chapter 94. Rolls Part 5.